Welcome to Freedom Matters Today. I am Michael J. Sutton, and it is December the 18th, 2023. Today we're continuing our series on the identity of Jesus Christ as part of our Freedom from Past and Prejudice theme. Freedom Matters Today looks at freedom from a Christian perspective. This is perhaps one of the great questions of Christianity. Today's question is a very controversial one. There are many who say emphatically yes, many who say no. And I think a many, great, a great number of people simply don't know. The question for today is, is Jesus God? It is an important question because it goes right to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It goes right to the heart of what it means to be human, and it goes right to the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. It really is the key question. I've been arguing these last few weeks that the most important question for our generation for us today, really is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are many people in the, around the world who believe in resurrection. Many in the East believe in karma. and They believe in reincarnation. There are many in the West who believe in a world of angels and demons and spirits. There are many who believe in the world beyond the afterlife Many believe in gods and gods, gods and a god and spirits and so on. Many believe in the god, one god or whatever. So really, it is only really the Anglo-Saxon atheist hordes, or what's left of them, who have a problem with a spiritual world. It is a tragedy, isn't it, that so many Christians are spending their time trying to convince atheists to believe in the existence of God. What a waste of time. The vast majority of humans on this planet believe in a divine being. The vast majority of humans believe in a world we cannot see that's beyond, that is existential, that is really a fundamental understanding of what it means to be alive. So great many people believe in God, and so they really don't have a problem with the idea of resurrection. Why would they? But for them, and I think the most important question for us today, is what is the identity of Jesus Christ? Who is he? And the chief question amongst all the questions is, is Jesus God. It is a most profound question, and it is a question we've been looking at. And you find in the letter to the Hebrews, written by its unknown author, the identity of Jesus is his or her, but probably his, main intention. His main goal in this letter is to talk about, to ponder, to reflect on the identity of Jesus. And we live in a time when identity is one of the big issues. 
many people in the West struggle with who they are, who they were, and who they want to be. And there's lots of definitions these days on what constitutes a man or a woman, and many of the gender identities in between. As I've said before, the response of many Christians is to argue against all of this and say, no, no, we don't want to talk about this, this is not important for us, or spend our time criticizing those who identify as one of the gendered minorities. But this is a question that the New Testament writers also pondered. This is a question that the New Testament writers also struggled with, and this is a question that the New Testament writers addressed, because the most important question in that first century was, who was Jesus? And the most important question for us today is, who is Jesus? And the most important question in asking the question, who is Jesus, is, is Jesus God? So we've been looking at freedom from past and prejudice. And as I said last week, freedom from the past are things that define us and bind us, which prevent us from knowing God and ourselves. And one of the chief things that define us and bind us is a misunderstanding on the nature of God. It's a misunderstanding on the identity of God. And if we get this wrong or if we misunderstand this, then everything else is affected. For Jesus, the past, his past, both defined and bound him in life and death. For him, he was a Jew. For him, he was caught up in a time of messianic expectation. For him, he had before him a very clear idea of what he was going to do, of who he was and how he related to his Father in heaven. Many people around him wanted him to be someone he was not. And many people around him had no idea who he was. So he gathered around him a group of men and a group of women. The men he discipled, and the women were the ones who provided the financial assistance for them, and many of them probably were married to the disciples, or friends or relatives of the disciples, and they provided financial assistance for this little group of people gathered around Jesus. And for those brief years, he talked with them, walked with them, lived with them. And then he was crucified on a cross. He was buried in the tomb of a stranger. And then Christians believe, and I believe, Jesus rose from the dead, a physical, bodily resurrection. And then he ascended into heaven. And so in that brief period of time was the time of inspiration for those who wrote the New Testament and they composed their letters and their books and everything we have, everything we know about Jesus comes from that very short, very brief, very concise period of time. For Jesus, his identity was at the heart of his being and existence. He wanted others to know who he was and he wanted others to follow him. And he wanted others to understand who God was. Is Jesus, the Son of God, the message of God who enables us to see our past and confront our prejudice so we might live in complete freedom? 
One of the remarkable things about freedom is that it comes from God. There is a great sense of liberation and freedom once we know God. Then we can know ourselves and we can know others. And once we know who God is, it makes all the difference. The letter to the Hebrews, or letter to the Jews, was written by an unknown magisterial author who composed the letter most likely between A.D. C.E. 33 and A.D. C.E. 70. There are no references to the fall of Jerusalem in this letter and the end of the temple. Not even a rumour, which suggests that the text predates this time. I'm not convinced that it would ever be after the temple, temple's destruction. The focus of the writer, the author's attention, is to, is to contrast Jesus with the temple. And if the temple's gone... Not only would he have no need to talk about it, he would also refer to it constantly in the past tense. But he doesn't. So it's highly likely that this magisterial letter was written by someone who either saw Jesus or who came to follow him in that first generation. And he writes in the first chapter, verses 2 to 4, The sun is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. There's a lot of profound things in these two verses. In fact, we could talk all day about what they're saying. Last time I unpacked the first part of this verse of the sun is the radiance of the glory of God. But this first part makes clearer sense when placed against the rest of the sentence and the exact representation of his being. The sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his being. So it's highly likely that in terms of the meaning of this verse, both parts are to be put together. The last few weeks I've been looking at the radiance of the glory of God in terms of the sun and today and next week we will look at the second part which is the exact representation of his being. The sun radiates the glory of God because he is God. He is the reality, the perfection, the exact representation of God. Even the phrase, exact representation of God, is unambiguous. In other words, it's highly difficult to propose an alternative reading of the Greek. Unless one adopts the commonly used path of a paraphrase, but even then, these editions of the New Testament cannot escape the clear intention of this author, and his intention is to say that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the exact representation of the being of God. This is a most remarkable statement. It really is the heart of the Christian message that Jesus is not just a man, but he is also God. That Jesus is not just Jesus of Nazareth, but the Son of God, the Word of God, God from eternity past. And if Jesus was before he came, 
then this has profound implications, not only for our understanding of the Bible, but our understanding of ourselves and our world. It really goes to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. We are not just following Jesus in our life, a man of moral character, a man of resolute determination, a man of decisive commitment to goodness, to kindness and love, but a man who was God made flesh, God incarnate, God living amongst us. It is not simply following Jesus, but following God. And this makes all the difference. This is really what the author is saying. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact representation of his being. He is saying, well, he is God. The Son is the engraving of the same substance as God, the essence of God. The allegation here would have been preposterous for his Jewish readers. Though not entirely unknown to them, because they would have known of the Christian belief in the deity of the man Jesus of Nazareth. They would have known that the early Christians saw Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. They would have known this because this is what the Gospel writers say and what Paul and the other apostles say, that Jesus is God. So it would not be entirely unknown to them, but it would not lessen the preposterous nature of the claim and the allegation that Jesus is God. They would have been horrified because they could not conceive of the idea that God would become human. But we know from last week and from our understanding of the Bible that even right back in Genesis, it was the Lord God who appeared to Abraham. And Abraham saw him as a man. And also the Lord God appeared to many others throughout the Hebrew Bible. It is not, it is not said that he appeared in visions or dreams all the time. It may well have been encounters between God and man. In Ezekiel and Daniel we have the visions of the Ancient of Days being approached by one like the Son of Man. And in Ezekiel's enigmatic and most profound passage, we have the one who appears in that remarkable vision coming to the exiles far from home. What's interesting is that the terms or the, the way that the writer describes the nature of Jesus' um, substance or God's substance, the idea is of the exact representation is the image of an engraver, someone tasked with the job of replicating something to his exact likeness, perhaps a statue or a text or a scroll or some other object. And these craftspeople were remarkable. They performed their task like computers do today. The sun is the engraved image of God is what he's trying to say. As for the likeness of God, the text seems to be unambiguous, and the English translation we have of his being really gives us the heart of the matter. Of his being. The Son is of the being of God. The Son is of the substance of God. In Greek it means his nature, what is called hypostasis, which means substance 
or reality. The sun is the exact image of God and the same substance as God. This is a most remarkable statement. The fiction that is popular today is that Jesus never claimed to be God and the Bible doesn't say he is God and that the church later invented the doctrine that he said he was God or rewrote the Bible to say that Jesus was God. The, the latter allegation is entirely dubious. There is no evidence that the early Christians doctored the texts or invented a set of ideas and squashed them onto earlier texts. There is very little evidence that that would take place. We have to remember that Christianity was not a major world religion until 300 years or so later. And at the time of the writing of all the New Testament books, Christianity was, in effect, an idea, a doctrine, a set of ideas about Jesus of Nazareth held by a small number of people in Palestine and in the Roman Empire. And there were many, many other religious groups and competing ideas at the time. There's no reason why they would go out and doctor the texts or invent a set of ideas and squash them onto earlier texts. Well, okay, if that's what happened with Christian Christianity, then it must have happened with every other single religious group. They must have doctored their texts as well, but you never hear that from the scholars. For some bizarre reason, it's only the Jews who invented their theology and Christians who doctored their text. And these gutless cowards don't have the temerity, don't have the the um, the, the moral ter- uh, moral fortitude to make any allegation against any of the other major religions. What frauds they are! And yet they sell the books because people are not willing to entertain the idea that Jesus is claiming to be God, that the early Christian believers believed that Jesus was God that the early Christians pondered, reflected, meditated upon the Jesus whom they knew and the one with whom they walked, that he was a man, but he also was the Son of God. And that's as it is. There was no great conspiracy. There was no doctoring of the texts. There were, most likely, competing versions of Christianity in the early days, as is evidenced by the conflicts between Paul and others in his Corinthian letters. He talks about the super-apostles, you know, those spiritual ones. We all have them today. The ones in churches who think they're so important and they want us to buy their 50 million books and they rehash the same books every year. They just change the title and republish them. They seem to make a lot of money. And many of them say very little and most of them say very little about Christ. But Paul talks about these super-apostles. They were men in that first generation who used their position to, in a sense, promote a different version of their understanding of Jesus Christ. And Paul calls them out and calls them the super apostles or whatever. In the letter to the Galatians, there's another group of people too who have a different understanding of who Jesus was. In John's letters, there are contests between John and some others who have a different understanding of who Jesus was. So there were most likely different competing versions of Christianity at the time, and many ideas were floating around at the time. It's interesting that these different understandings of the life of Jesus were sometimes the result of personalities, but often it was the promotion of one idea over others that revealed some kind of zealotry, as is often the case in religion. What's important about the letters we have in the New Testament is that they were most likely written by Paul, James, John, 
Peter, and a few others, Luke, who either knew Jesus or were in that first generation of those who um, had been influenced by him or met him. What called what the the the, uh, the Christian tradition is called eyewitness accounts or people who knew Jesus or followed him at that time, and so many of these later opinions of him were written by men and women who never saw him, never knew him, and just made it up as they went along. And what's amazing is that you can read the Gospels, and a lot of them are kind of boring in a way. There's they read very clearly. There's a predictability about them there's a sensibility about them but they're not marvel comics there's no batman or superman revelation and then you read about the discovery of some text written 400 years later or 300 years later and the scholars they go crazy about it this must be true they say this must be true this is the true story of jesus why it was written centuries later Many, many centuries later, why would it be true? What magical truth did these people have that the early Christians didn't? I would say that Paul, Peter and John in particular, presented a balanced view of the life of Jesus. Or they sought as much as they could in their own way. In many ways, they don't go far enough in saying what we would like them to say about Jesus. I think that we have to view the texts of the New Testament as ones written by men who were aware of what they were writing. They were aware of their readers. They were aware of the necessity to be clear. They were aware of the necessity to speak to the issues of the day. They were aware of the way texts were used, even at that time, and thus were cautious in the way they wrote about Jesus I do believe that the New Testament does present a balanced view of the life of Christ and that the writers of the, of the Gospels wrote to their various audiences and these books and letters were gathered together as being very special because they do provide a testimony of the life of Christ from the point of view of the disciples and the apostles, those who followed him in that first generation. And subsequent Christians kept these letters and these uh, documents and this formed the basically the canon of the new testament the approved texts of the new testament if you don't want to believe that you're entitled to believe whatever you want to believe it's a free society after all at least for the time being in australia and in parts of the west but at the end of the day you still must confront the question of the identity of jesus christ you must answer that question. The authors of the New Testament also lived during a very dangerous time. The first century was a violent era. People died if they confronted authority or they challenged the authority. John the Baptist, all he said was, he said that the Herods, one of the Herods, were sleeping with his brother's wife. Everyone knew that. Everyone knew that. It wasn't like he was making some... A terrible political statement that was untrue. He wasn't lying about it. Everyone knew. But he was beheaded. It was a violent time. And the early Christian writers wrote with what we would call today a good sense of maturity and wisdom. The letters of the New Testament and the Gospels are carefully crafted so as to present 
what they believed to be the basics of the life of Jesus. His identity, his words and his actions, and they rejected the rest. The rest sorry. Perhaps they had every intention of writing other books or letters, maybe they did. But these are lost to history, we have what we have. Those who think that Jesus didn't claim to be God, or that the church centuries later invented this doctrine, obviously have not read the New Testament. It seems to me that what we call the basic understanding of Christianity took form in the first and second generation of those who followed Jesus of Nazareth. The allegation that Jesus never claimed to be God is mischievous because Jesus never wrote a book or a text or anything. And what we have of him is what others wrote about him. But I believe that the early followers of Jesus of Nazareth held him to be God. As this is intimated, suggested and promoted in the Gospel texts, the letters of the Apostles and Paul and Hebrew, Hebrews. The assertion of the divinity of Jesus would have been the only reason for their persecution. There were a few other competing sects in the first century, and if Jesus was simply another group like the Pharisees, then it doesn't explain why they were so vigorously opposed by others. It doesn't explain why the early Jewish communities in the first century so vigorously persecuted Christians. It was the identity of Jesus, not the resurrection, which got them into trouble. It was his identity, who he claimed to be, and whom others claimed that he claimed to be, what he claimed to be. The person of Jesus, his identity, was what got Paul into trouble. It's why they chased him around the region, persecuting him, beating him, stoning him. It's the reason why other Christian leaders were persecuted because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be divine. He claimed to be God among us. And this was offensive, subversive and radical. What does it mean that Jesus is the same nature of God, that he is the same substance as God, that he is the exact representation of God? Well, it means for me that we need to reconsider the way we view him. We need to re-evaluate the way we esteem him. We need to revise the way we perceive him. Most Christians today have a superficial view of Jesus, if they have a view at all. He is God's sidekick, God's right-hand man. And the divinity of Jesus is God, the same nature as God, the same being as God, the same image of God, is often downplayed, ignored or marginalised. Jesus is, for many Christians, some kind of divine jack-in-the-box. Or he is some kind of sort of magical key to prosperity, which is the way to explain most of these so-called revivals happening in America. This is counterfeit faith. People are not coming to Christ to follow God. They're coming to Christ because Jesus has promised them wealth and prosperity. Jesus was poor. Jesus was executed at the age of 33 or so. And he said, if you wish to follow me, the same will happen to you. Not exactly the great pep talk 
was it? Follow me and you'll get that red sports car. You'll be blessed by God. God wants to give you the best. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Everything's going to go well for you. Think of the Christians in Gaza today. Think of the Christians in Africa. Think of the Christians in China. And even think of the Christians in the West persecuted because they follow Jesus. This is why I've said that it is the identity of Jesus, the Son of God, which is more important than the resurrection of God. God could have simply raised a man, as Christ did, because he raised men, women and children. The simple fact of resurrection does not presuppose divinity. And that is why so many nominal or superficial Christians love the resurrection, because it bypasses the key question of who Jesus is. I think there are a lot of Christians who are fake, and it's not because they are on the left or on the right. It's not because they're libertarian or Marxist. It's not because they're rich or they're poor. It's not because they live in the wrong postcode or the right postcode. It's not because they're tall or they're short or they're fat or they're thin. And it's not even because of many of their other uh, disagreements over various issues of the Christian faith that are not central. They're fake Christians because they have rejected and repudiated the identity of Jesus Christ found in the Bible. They read the Bible. They find in it that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Son of Man, that Jesus is the Anointed One, the Messiah. He is God with us and they turn their face away and they redefine the identity of Jesus. They refuse to accept the identity of Jesus. And isn't that the great sin today? The great sin today is to reject someone's pronouns. The great sin today is to reject how people view themselves. The great sin today is to reject people's self-identity. And yet so many Christians do this when they look at Jesus. They reject his pronouns, even though it is clearly and plainly and obviously said in the text that they're reading in front of them and they hear it read in church and they turn around and say Jesus was just a man Jesus was not God. Jesus was a revolutionary and that was it. And they're not interested in accepting Jesus' pronouns, but they turn around and tell you that you must accept theirs. They turn around and tell you that you have to bow to their identity, but they won't accept the identity of Jesus Christ. When Christians therefore think of God, or the qualities of God, all, their, all his characteristics, all his aspects, there is no reason why we cannot apply them to Jesus, the Son of God. And I think this is a starting point. God is good. And so is Jesus, the one who lived a perfect life under the law, born under the law, so he might redeem and rescue those born under the law. God is kind. And there was no one kinder than Jesus, welcoming the leper, the sick, the dying and the prejudiced. God is loving, and there was no one more loving than Jesus. We see him weeping at the death of his friend Lazarus and weeping over Jerusalem on his way to the cross. God is forgiving, and there was no one more forgiving than Jesus, saying from the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. 
God is inflexible, and so is Jesus, making it clear that the road to destruction is wide, and most travel on it, and the road to life is narrow, and few find it. What this means is that we need to see Jesus afresh. We need to see him as early Christians saw him. We need to step back, strip away the cultural facade we've placed on him. We need to tear down the racial divide we have imposed upon him, and we need to reject the national lens through which we see him. This is our collective challenge, but it is also a personal one. We are dealing with God, and therefore we must tread carefully. But we must also know that all the character of God stems from his substance and his essence and his being. And in these three respects, Jesus is the same. And that we have one who created all the world and yet has time for us. We have one who died for sin once for all and yet remembers us. And we have one who lived a life for all of us and yet lived for us, showing us that each day we can bring glory to God. Remember, freedom matters today because you matter to God. Talk to you next week.